Well, this, uh, uh, this summer, in fact, our church is walking through the Psalms, the summer in the Psalms. And the Psalms, of course, are a collection of hymns and prayers uh, that show us how to live in the covenant before God. Collection of hymns and prayers that show us how to live in the covenant before God. So the, the Psalms can be found in the Old Testament, that first half of the Bible. And the Old Testament itself is organized into three main sections. You have the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, and the law, those first five books from Genesis down to Deuteronomy, you have the giving of the covenant of the old covenant and the old Testament. And then you have the prophets, which give the history of that covenant, Joshua down to Malachi. And then you get the writings, the law, the prophets and the writings and the writings are just life in the covenant. So you get covenant, then you get covenant history and covenant life. And the Psalms again are in that covenant life portion. How do we live inside of the covenant before God? The Psalms, again, are in that third section, that life uh, in the covenant. And the Psalms are full of all kinds of information and testimonies about the ups and downs of life. Psalms teaches us how to think, how to live, how to praise God and help one another in the good days. But in the Psalms, especially in the bad days, in the hard days, a third of the Psalms are laments. And so this morning, again, we come to the fourth Psalm. And guys, I want you guys to be aware of something that maybe you weren't aware of. The Psalms are like puzzle pieces built together. They're not just randomly thrown together collections of hymns. And so each of the 150 Psalms is building off of the previous one and connected into the next one. And so Psalm 1 is about the blessed man. Psalm 2 is about the blessed man that kisses the sun and finds refuge in him amidst the raging nations. Psalm 3, which we looked at two weeks ago, then comes in and shows you what the blessed man does amidst a raging nation. And if you look over there in chapter 3, again, look at that superscript there. That's the little tiny little words above the big number of three. You'll see that it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. There's the raging nation. David running away from his son as his son is trying to come in and take over the reign of David. And you'll notice at the end of chapter 3, verse 8, it says there, David says, salvation belongs to God. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 3 of the Psalms, it says that they're they're questioning. There is no salvation for him in God, and yet David in salvation belongs to God. And so Psalm 4 then shows you how that salvation happens. And so the background of Psalm 4 is still the raging nation of Israel. Absalom coming into Jerusalem, David fleeing his kingdom in jeopardy. But I want you guys to notice a little bit more of that superscript. Notice there at the very top, uh, again, of chapter 4, the little tiny words there, that superscript. You'll notice in that superscript, this psalm was never written to be just about David. This psalm was written to the choir master so that it could be used for singing, which is what we did this morning, corporate worship, right? And so this is indicative of all of the rest of the Bible. It's written for the corporate people of God to enter into the worship and praises of God. And so this psalm in particular is meant to order our worship while we wait amidst our own raging nation in distress. It's designed to help us answer this question. And here's the question we're going to answer this morning. You take notes. This is the question you put at the top. How do Christians sleep while they while they struggle? How do Christians sleep while they struggle? If you're not a Christian and you're wondering, how is it we rest when things are tough in our own lives or in the world at large? This sermon, hopefully, will answer that question. How do Christians sleep 
while they struggle. If you want the longer question, how do Christians lie down and sleep while they are outnumbered, unaccepted, intimidated, and vulnerable amidst the raging world around them? Just as David was. David was living in that same context. How do Christians sleep while they struggle? That's the question we'll answer. Three points this morning. We pray, we preach, and we pray again, and then we lie down and sleep. Uh, And so, kids, your sermon notes this morning are wrong on that third point, and it's my fault. So I just want you to know that the third point is going to be we pray again. There you go. I just gave you the answer to that one. So uh, I messed it up. So there's my fault. Anyway, here we go. We pray, we preach, we pray again, we lie down and sleep. First off, we pray to God. Take a look at the psalm there. You see there, that's David's response from, uh, that's David's response from the midst of his raging nation. Absalom's coming in. His response is to pray. Absalom, his own flesh and blood, his own son is hunting him down. And what's David's response? To pray. To pray. He says there, answer me when I call. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. I read an article the other day where a guy was bemoaning gun violence and how thoughts and prayers don't do anything, right? He's, he wants more action. I understand that. But he's wrong to say that prayer doesn't do anything. Right? The sad thing is, I think sometimes we confessing Christians uh, in our own lives tend to agree in terms of our functionality. We don't pray as we ought. It's not uncommon, as you've heard me say before, when I'm meeting somebody and you know they're telling me about a particular struggle maybe in their marriage, maybe in their life, maybe something else going on, and I'll ask them, have you been praying about this? Or how have you been praying about this? And guys, it's not an uncommon answer for them, for me to hear back. Well, I haven't really been praying much about that. Or I haven't really been praying much at all about that. Or I haven't been praying specifically much. Or I haven't been praying at all. And yet that wasn't David's response. When he was facing a trial that was far greater than probably anything we will ever face. His instinct was to pray. He needed, we see, we needed God to hear him in prayer amidst his distress. And so I ask you guys, do you? Do you need God to hear you amidst your distress? Do you feel like you need God? Or is God more like a kind of fallback plan? That you go to when all the other plans break through. Corey Ten Booms asks the question provocatively. Is your prayer. Is prayer your steering wheel. Or your spare tire. Beloved prayer is how we abide in Jesus. He said that if you don't abide in him you can do nothing. And so if you don't abide in Christ through prayer. Don't expect to sleep. It's really that simple. Either you develop a habit of prayer or you shrivel up and your soul will die. You can't expect to thrive in the covenant without conversation with the God of covenant. You can't expect to sleep while you're suffering unless you learn to pray. And so you guys say, all right, Nathan, that's great. Got it. How do I pray in this distress, in my suffering? How do I pray? Well, first, we learn from David, you pray with awareness. You pray with awareness, awareness that is of God's past grace. Awareness of the grace to have even been given access to God in the first place. Look at the passage there. David not only prays, but notice that he recognizes that the righteousness that he has to even approach God is a gift. 
He answers, he says, answer me, O God, of my righteousness. It's his righteousness, but it's of God. God is holy. None of us deserve to be heard. In fact, the only thing we do deserve to be, uh, we deserve from God is to not be heard. In our sin, we've rebelled against God, and yet God, in his grace, chooses to show grace to sinners to allow us to commune with him with a righteousness that has been graced to us. Again, going back to Psalm 3, 8, it says salvation belongs to God. And in Psalm 4, 1, he says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. David recognizes, guys, that it is a righteousness. He has a righteousness that is of God, not of David. Comes from him. That's why he prays at the end of verse 1. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David was aware that he deserved nothing. He was aware that he didn't deserve to be heard in prayer. I mean, dude didn't even get to show up when Jesse was bringing him to see who was going to be crowned king by Samuel. He knows all of this is of grace. He's aware of that. He knows that. Therefore, when he goes to God, he's readily aware of what got him in the position of hearing in the first place. He then knows what he needs to be heard again. He needs grace. In his distress, David doesn't come to God with an attitude of kind of, you owe me, God, so listen up. It's not what he, it's not the attitude of his heart. As I heard from a pastor this week, he said, don't ask God to be fair with you. It's a good word. He was a, David was aware that he needed grace. And so he prayed with awareness of God's righteousness that had been graced to him. And so likewise, brothers and sisters, when you pray, be reminded it's Christ's righteousness given to you in faith that allows you to come boldly to the throne of grace. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, right? We are reminding ourselves that we can only come to God because of what Christ has done for us in the past at the cross. And so apart from that, we have no righteousness of our own. But in Christ, we have a righteousness of God is given to us by grace, right? Second Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We gotta be reminded of that when we come to God in prayer amidst our distress. But we, pr- we not only pray aware of God's past grace and salvation, we also gotta be aware when we go to God in prayer, we also be, have to be aware of God's past grace in sanctification, what God has done since our salvation, since our trusting in Christ. David was aware of God's past grace even after being given his position of righteousness. You can see that in the second line there in verse 1. He says there, you have given me relief when I was in distress. He's reminded that God's given him relief before. David is aware of God's past grace and salvation and sanctification, which fuels his desperation to go to God and ask for now present grace. He's reminded of God's past grace, and so he asked it for present grace. And so, beloved, are you aware of the grace of your righteousness that allows you to pray in the first place? And then secondly, are you aware, beloved, of the 10,000 times that the Lord has given you relief since your salvation? Have you thought about that? Or is God's past grace largely unnoticed or unappreciated? Could you imagine, for instance, as an example of this, we, we as people are often forgetful, aren't we? 
Which is why, and I think the Lord knew that. That's why he gave us things like the Lord's Supper, because we're so apt to forget things. So, for instance, try to think about this. Imagine your life without the ability to read and write. If you couldn't read or write, what would your life be like? It'd be pretty tough, right? And yet, how often do we think back to the people that taught us how to read and write and are thankful for them? Right? We're so forgetful people. Consider how the Israelites so quickly forgot the grace that came upon them. You know, imagine waking up that first day and seeing this miraculous manna. Like, this is, this is pretty crazy, right? Eating it like, this is pretty good. And the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day. And then you're, finally you get to the point where you're like, ah, I'm tired of this manna. That's what they did. They forgot about the miraculous grace of God. We are so forgetful of the many good things that have been done for us in general. And we so often can be uh, especially forgetful of the things that God has done for us. The times that he has given us relief. Yet in the midst of David's distress, he was keenly aware of the fact that God had given him relief before. In his salvation, that righteousness, and in his sanctification. He wasn't forgetful amidst his distress. Are you? Am I? Are you aware of the 10,000 ways God has given you relief in the past? Are you, are you guys good historians of God's past grace? The time that he asked, the time that you asked God to save you, and he did. The time that you asked God to forgive you, and he did. The time that you asked God to forgive you, and he did. The time that he, uh, the time that you asked God for a job, and he gave you one. The time that he asked you for a church, and he gave you one. The time that you asked him for a spouse, a child, a friend, and he gave you one. The time that he, you asked for a home in heaven, and he's given you one. Are you mindful of these things? Are you aware of these things? Are you mindful of the time, that time, those times when you were broken? Do you remember that? When you were broken, desperate, needy, and you couldn't sleep. Remember those days? And you became so desperate like David, you went boldly to God. You pleaded to him to answer, and he did. Maybe not in the time or in the way in which you wanted him to, but he did. Beloved, you may not be where you want to be, but you're not where you were. Do you remember how God has given you relief before? Are you aware of God's past grace? If you are, it's going to fuel you to plead for present grace in your time of distress now. Guys, we got to be, you guys, we got more degrees in Fahrenheit in this room right here. Uh, you guys, some, we got some people in this room that got PhDs and master's degrees, and some of us don't even have any of those degrees. But we need to be studiers, good historians. We need to learn to get PhDs in God's past grace. It's going to help us in our time of distress. It's going to help us when you pray. So first, pray. we got to pray amidst our distress. And when we pray, we've got to be aware of God's past grace. And secondly, we've got to pray while knowing. Pray uh, with knowledge of God's past grace and pray while knowing. Knowing that if you have God's righteousness... You will be heard. You will be heard. You'll be heard by God. David begs for grace to be heard. You see that in verse 1. Slide down to verse 3. He knows that the Lord will hear him. Again, he's experienced it already, right? So do you know that when you pray, you'll be heard? Do you know that? Christian, do you know that when you pray, you're going to be heard? Do you know, Christian brother, sister, that when you pray, God hears you? Do you know that? 
First Peter 3, 12 is a promise. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. And I know sometimes it doesn't feel like God has hurt us. Sometimes we uh, might even kind of, David even seems to kind of start there maybe to a degree. But when you go to God in the name of Christ, remembering past grace in Christ, you can be confident that the Lord does hear you. He sent his son to die for you in order that you could be heard. You ever think about that? We use that language a lot here in our church. The privilege of prayer. God sent his son so that you can pray and be heard by God the Father. He is not silent. He has answered our prayers for forgiveness. He has answered our prayers for relief countless times since that salvation. So, beloved, call those things to mind and you might, in order that you might know that he hears you when you pray. Pray with awareness of God's past grace. Pray while knowing you will be heard by the Father. We learn that from David in his distress. In fact, David could easily sing with us that old hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. Y'all know that song? All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. Y'all know the rest? Everything to God in prayer. Listen to that next line of the hymn. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We have to pray amidst our distress. How do struggling Christians lie down and sleep? They go to God boldly in prayer with awareness of God's past grace, knowing they will be heard. And then from that, secondly, this morning, we then preach to men. Preach to men. Maybe that wasn't the movement you were expecting from David here. Amidst our distress, We go to God in prayer, reminding of past grace, reminding that we're going to be heard. And then from that strength, and we then preach to our pursuers. Look at verse 2. It's an interesting transition there. David goes to God in prayer, verse 1. He then from that, he starts a sermon. Starts, Dude starts preaching. Oh, men, he says. He's moved from talking to God to now talking to men. He's in anguish because of men pursuing him in Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, verse 1. Then in verse 2, he's preaching to to those men that are pursuing him. Which reminds me of that time in Christ's life in uh, Matthew 12, 46. Y'all remember that when Jesus says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You ever thought about that sentence before? All of us probably know, many of us in the room anyway, know what happens before that, right? Jesus in Gethsemane, and he's praying, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me, please. But not what I will, what you will. And then at the conclusion of that prayer, what does he do? He says that. He says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. How did he move from let this cup pass from me, from uh, sweat dripping like blood, to instead of receiving the dudes with clubs and swords... Stands up and goes and meet him. How does that happen? What's the thing? Prayer. He prays. Same thing happens with David. David is in his distress, is in distress, but by going to God in prayer, he is strengthened to then preach to his pursuers. And he's got a four point sermon. I have three. He's got four. 
Here's the first point of his sermon is to confront the lies they love. It's a fascinating movement. Verse 2, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? See, David knew that his pursuers were shaming his honor because they loved empty words and then sought out things that weren't true. David knew the truth. He just rehearsed that in prayer, and yet men often do not. As a rule, mankind does not know the truth. Instead, as a rule, we do not, tin- we do not tinker with empty ideas. We tend to love them. We tend to seek them out. Don't believe me? Spend five minutes on Twitter. Go to the Washington Post article. Click on the comment section. See a lot of folks there believing lies and loving vain and empty words. Don't do that long, by the way. Just spend just a couple minutes. It's really, yeah, a bad exercise. But anyway, Absalom had convinced his army, right, of this empty word, of this lie. Absalom had convinced his army that he was the rightful king and that David needed to be removed. And these dudes, his army, thought that by shaming David, getting him out of the way, and then getting their guy, Absalom, into the throne of Israel, they thought that their guy could then introduce for them the good life. And David comes in and says, vanity. All of your trouble, he's saying, all of your slander, your shaming of me, your pursuits of me, your destroying of, you're destroying me, all of it is built on loving, empty words, seeking after lies. You're wrong. He's saying to this army, like, this is all going nowhere. There's a man by the name of Jonathan Haidt, I don't believe is a Christian. He wrote a book that I read this past year, and he, uh, Jonathan Haidt wanted to bring about good change, changes, good changes. He wanted to bring about good changes, and he thought, his thinking was, he talks about this in one of his books, he talks about how if he could bring about change, it would seem to be like he would pursue the discipline of philosophy. Makes sense, right? Kind of get into how people think. And then Jonathan Haidt began to realize the very thing that I think the Bible teaches uniquely. He began to realize something that uh, by helping people make better choices, by helping them think better, wouldn't probably bring about the change that he was hoping for. Because Jonathan Haidt began to realize that we are not what we think. We are what we love. And so Haidt didn't pursue philosophy. He instead goes on to pursue psychology. People know, right, that they shouldn't speed because it's dangerous or it's against the law, but you do it. Come on, be honest, right? We know that with our minds, it's dangerous to speed, but we still do it. Why? Because we love getting there on time or a little bit early. Christians know that they shouldn't look at porn, but many of them do it because they love sensuality. You know that you should pray, but you struggle to do it, right? Because you might love entertainment or something else. We are not what we think. Ultimately, we are what we love. And David preaches that to his pursuers. That's the first point of his sermon. Uh, brother Chris Ambridge and I are reading a biography of J.C. Ryle right now. He texted me this morning, and I wrote this literally as I was looking at my notes. It was so good. J.C. Ryle's pastor from the 19th century, says, The world will let a man go to hell quietly and never try to stop him. 
the world will never let a man go to heaven quietly. They will do all they can to turn him back. And so, beloved, you need to know. You trusted in Jesus. You're not a Christian thinking about following Jesus. Count the cost, bro. It's going to be tough. People will shame you, slander you, trash you, fire you, make fun of you, judge you. People will take advantage of you, not because necessarily of what they believe, but because of the empty lies that they love to pursue. Thinking that in those things is where life can be found. That's what's happening in their hearts. Husbands cheat on wives. Pastors manipulate their congregations. Church members complain about faithful pastors. Missionaries are killed in cold blood. You and I, uh, we disobey God's good and gracious commands. Why? Because we love empty, vain words and we seek after lies. That's why. We love the wrong things. Psalm 4.2 can explain everything, friends, from the, from the discussion over transgenderism to racism to abortion to Christian nationalism. It can explain all of that spectrum. David goes here because he knows he can't get them, he can't get us to lie down in sleep in safety until we are exposed to all the lies that we love to pursue, thinking that in them we will find the life that we want. And yet in reality, those lies will only lead us to death. David knows that. That's point one of his sermon. Point two of his sermon, he first off, and we're going to, he confronts the lies they love. Point two is to call them to the gospel. That's verse 3. Look at it. Strengthened by prayer, verse 1, he preaches to sinful men. He confronts the lies that they love. That's point 1. He then calls them, verse 3, to a better love. Now, I've wrestled with this transition. This has not been an easy sort of transition, Psalm 4. I've tried to wrestle with the transition into verse 3. Is David right here in this transition, is he trying to be kind of vindictive? Not vindictive. Is he trying to be sort of confrontational? As in to say, when he says there in verse 3, Oh man, how long will you turn to shame? But know the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. In that move right there, is he like, y'all better know. Is that his movement? Or is it more, is he trying to compel? After some prayer and meditation, I think he's trying to compel. He's trying to compel them to believe. Not just trying to threaten them, but trying to compel them. I believe David means to compel them to follow Christ. And yes, I use that name distinctly and specifically, Christ. David means to compel all of us, but especially in here, that are not trusting and treasuring Christ as Lord. He wants you to love the truth and not love empty lies that lead to death. He wants you to follow Christ. You need to know, he's saying in verse 3, you need to know the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. You need to know that. Now, some of us might read that and think, well, set apart the godly. That's just all the Christians, as it were. Well, yes and no. So here's what's interesting about that word godly. Can can I get a little nerdy with you guys just for a second? Okay. I'm doing it anyway. So, uh, So that word godly is in the singular. It's not plural. Godly is referencing a single person. He set apart a person, the godly one, for himself. talking about a person. David is saying, you need to know that the Lord has set apart the godly one, the godly man for himself. And the Lord hears him when I, referencing himself, call him. David was the royal king of Israel. 
God had anointed him and made a promise to him that in his line, one would come that would be a ruler over more than Israel. David knew this. David knew that there would be one that would come that would be a forever king, that would be a king of the nations. And it is my belief that the godly one that David is ultimately referencing is grounded in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. David, friends, was a type, was a shadow of a greater king that was going to come. We, I like to use the language of a tin cake mold, right? The tin cake mold looks like the cake, has the shape of the cake, but it ain't the cake. Anybody want to eat a tin cake mold this morning? No, right? That's what the Old Testament is. That's what even David's position was. Had the shape of it, had the look, but it wasn't the cake, wasn't the substance of the cake, and that was Christ. David was pointing to him. Jesus is the godly one that they were pursuing, as it were. And so as Absalom pursued his father in order to set himself up as a king, beloved, so have all of us loved empty words and sought after the lie that we could make ourselves kings and queens. That we too could set up and become, as Satan tempted, become uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. We could become like God ourselves. We all have rejected God as king. We all have sort of attacked David. We've all kind of been in Absalom's army. Happens every time that you disobey the Lord's good and gracious commands. Happens every time that you're apathetic towards him. You just don't care about him. Happens every time you've done whatever the heck you wanted to do with no regard for Christ as king. I've done, you've done, we've done all kinds of things. We've loved vain words. We've sought after lies. But what David is preaching to us this morning is you and I, we need to know the Lord has set apart the Christ, the beloved one, the eternal son, the godly one. The Lord has set him apart for himself. The Lord hears him, hears Christ when he prays. And what does Jesus pray? He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ, And the line of David and the line of Abraham takes on flesh, the God-man, fully God and fully man. He comes as an offering, as a sacrifice for sinners that repent and believe upon him. He, He goes sacrificing his life, shedding his blood, offering his body as a sacrifice to sinners that would believe. He receives that wrath you heard Ray talking about earlier that Romans 1 mentions. God's right to be angry at our sin. I mean, my goodness, we've chased after him as king and tried to set our own selves up. And God sends his son to take that payment by grace to give us mercy instead of wrath. Christ satisfies that payment. And we know that it's received because of the resurrection. David confronts the lies they love and he commends the gospel they need. He confronts the lies they love and the commends the gospel that we need. That leads to the third point of his sermon that allows for Christians to sleep as they struggle. Third point of David's little sermon as he preaches to his pursuers is to consider the gospel. Consider the gospel. You can see that in verse 4. Another verse I struggled with this week. All of us are going to read this and think about Ephesians 4.26. Okay, those of us that know Ephesians 4.26, you're going to read that. But more often than not... In the Old Testament, that Hebrew word is translated tremble. Even when you go back and read Ephesians 4, you'll notice it's not a direct quotation of Psalm 4. 
I think a better way to read this, it fits inside of David's little sermon, is to read it as it's often translated. The word there, be angry. In other words, tremble. You could read it if you want to. Other faithful men and women do read that way. Give, give full vent to your anger and do not sin. Yes, that could be. I think, though, meant to tremble. Remember, he's calling them to the gospel. He says, tremble before this God of the gospel and don't sin. After we go to God in prayer, reminded of past grace, strengthened by being heard by the Father, we preach to men the truth about ourselves, about the truth of the gospel, and what can happen a lot to us, and it probably just happened this morning. I'm sure it did. You're like, yeah, yeah, Nathan, I've heard that gospel. Jesus died, got it, whatever, right? Heard that before. And you're tempted to hear it, but not consider it, not ponder it. You've heard it a thousand times. Yeah, this is the part of the sermon when the preacher gets up there and preaches the gospel. Ba, 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 ba. Did you ponder it? See, David gets that. And he says, ponder it. Think about it. Ruminate of it. Tremble before this God of the gospel. And then ponder it. Think about it. Meditate on it. We don't often tremble before the God of the gospel and stop sinning. How many of us have done that? Right? They, 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 we, we've meditated. We've pondered the greatness of this God. And then as a result, we say, man, I better not do that thing. That I was thinking about doing. I think it's oftentimes because we don't slow down and ponder in our hearts. Notice the text says in our hearts, not just our heads, in our hearts. We don't think about that. We don't get in our bedrooms, turn off that television, put our phones away, and ponder the God of the gospel. We don't do that. And we might be tempted to believe, well, it's because of these phones. Well, apparently it was a problem thousands of years ago, too. Nothing new under the sun, folks. We're so distracted. That was true in David's day, as evidenced by the call, uh, the, the need to call men to tremble before this God and his gospel, stop sinning, the need to slow down, sit on our beds, and just ponder in silence the truths about Christ and what he has done and what he will do. Don't just hear the gospel, guys. Tremble before the gospel such that it leads you to stop sinning. Don't just know the gospel facts in your head. The demons believe that and shudder. Ponder it down deep in your hearts, verse 4. Don't just do that on the bus, sort of like, all right, I'm on the bus, going to work. Should open up my Bible, Ephesians 2. Okay, yeah. Thank you, Jesus. He died for me. That's awesome. All right. On to the next episode of The Office. No. Get in your bedroom, turn off the TV, sit and ponder the God of the gospel. Tremble before him, tremble before him. Ponder in your heart and the silence of your bedroom, the horror of the gospel. That not just the king David was being sought after, but the king of kings was being murdered. Consider in your hearts the horror of the gospel. Consider in your hearts the beauty of the gospel. Consider in your hearts, on your beds, in the quietness of that moment, consider the power of the gospel. So that you will stop trusting and start, stop, sorry, stop, stop sinning and start trusting. Which is the fourth point of David's little sermon. Confront the lies that lay that we love, commends the gospel we need, calls them to ponder it in the truth of their hearts. And then verse 5, commands them to put their trust in the God of the gospel. Verse 5, offer right sacrifices. Implication, guys, would you stop offering the wrong ones? 
It's no sacrifice, he's saying, to do the work of false teachers and false saviors and all these kinds of things. Put your trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. Don't put your trust in yourself. Don't put your trust in the American dream. Don't put your trust in the individualized Lord that happens to fit with all of your likes and dislikes. No, don't trust that one. Trust the Lord. Offer right worship by putting your trust in the true Lord, the one revealed to us in Christ, the true and lasting king, not Absalom. Guys, stop trusting Absalom. Start trusting the greater David. Stop loving lies. Tremble before the greatness of God. Stop sinning. Ponder the gospel down deep in your hearts in the silence of your bedroom and start trusting and loving the truth. The invitation is there for all of us this morning that if you are apart from Christ, offer the right sacrifice of your life. Not as a way to earn your salvation. Christ has already done that. But friend, if you're not trusting in Christ, come to him this morning. Today's the day of salvation and say, I'm done with trusting myself. I'm done with trusting these lies. I want to trust Jesus and offer a right sacrifice of my life to him. Not as an offering for my sin, but to trust that one and then work it out. And if you're in Christ, may the word of God be pondered down deep in your heart. Tremble that you might not be sinned. Stop loving empty words and seeking after lies. Put your trust in the Lord. And friend, you may have to be like David and flee Jerusalem from your job, maybe even from your own family. You may have your honor shamed, but you will come back into Jerusalem again. Don't forget that. This is how struggling Christians sleep. We pray to God. We preach to man, and thirdly, finally, we pray again to the Lord. You can see that in verses 6 to 7. Who will show us some good? See that? It seems that this is the response of mankind to David's sermon, right? He preaches his four points, and it's met with disdain. Folks be like, I don't like your sermon. Where's this good God at, bro? Talk to us, preacher man. Where's all the good at that you're talking about? And we feel the force of that question, don't we? Sometimes it's what causes us to suffer more distress. I mean, just think about the last few years. COVID, followed by racial strife, political turmoil, more gun violence, increasing societal confusion over the basic question of who we are as human beings, followed by more wars and rumors of wars. Maybe you've been thinking that yourself, asking that question yourself. When and where can I find some good? Indeed, I think this is part of the reason some of us are afraid to preach the gospel to our fellow man. Because we know this question is coming. Where's all the good from your good God? Why should I repent and trust him? There's so much darkness around. And we Christians can lie down and sleep amidst that question. You ask how? Because as David just preached, we don't put our trust in the world for good. We put our trust in the Lord for good. David answers the naysayers who mock his sermon with a question by going again to God in prayer and asking for a kind of good that nothing in this world can spoil. Look at that. Look at his prayer. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. 
Lift up the light of your face upon us. There's his cry in the face of that question. The Christian's trust is in the Lord. We've been told this world is full of trouble. God told us it was going to be that way. Peter tells us to not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon us as something strange was happening. Guys, we as Christians, we are exiles. We are sojourners on this earth. This world uh, has murdered our chief delight. We don't hope in this world for good. Our hope is in the Lord. And with just one glimpse of his face, we see a light that can light up the darkest night and lead us to sleep even amidst the troubles. We do not trust in this world to give us full and final joy. We go to the one that can in prayer. And we say, God, just show us your face. Just show me your face. Lift up your light of your face on me in this moment. One look there will give us enough light to push through the brightest day and the darkest night. One look from him. Isaac Ambrose wrote some 400 years ago, Christ is the whole of man's happiness, the sun to enlighten him, the physician to heal him, the wall of fire to defend him, the friend to comfort him, the pearl to enrich him, the ark to shelter him, the rock to sustain him under the heaviest of pressures. He, Jesus, is the ladder between heaven and earth, the mediator between God and man, a mystery which the angels desire to look to. As Christ, he says, is more excellent than all the world, so this sight transcends all other sights, Looking unto Jesus is the epitome of Christian's happiness, the quintessence of evangelical duties. Looking to his face. The Christian life is centered on Christ. He's our life. He's our light. He's our love. We know that we, we know that seeing good uh, can be hard, right, in this world. But when Christ was given to us, we were given access to see and savor the pristine beauty of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And there in the face of Christ, we find window to eternal joy. The world will only see this. They see in opaques. We see in translucence. We are able to see through the distress and see in the face of God, the eternal joy that we have. We look there. And so as we look upon the greatness of the glory of Christ in faith, as we labor to see and savor the beauty of Christ in prayer, asking him to lift up his face and shine upon us in our sufferings, we are then reminded again in prayer. Look at this verse. This is so beautiful. If you're looking for something to meditate on, here it is. You have put more joy in my heart than this world has when their grain and wine abound. Think about the situation when David's saying that. You have put more joy in my heart than this world has when their grain and wine abound. Guys, bread and wine are good gifts from God. They should be enjoyed as precious treasures, but they spoil and fade. Some of y'all know a well-known celebrity said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they dreamed of so that they can see it is not the answer. What is? The deposit of eternal joy found in the face of Christ, in the heart of the Christian. That's where it is. That's the answer. All else spoils and fades. The joy that God has placed in the heart of every adopted son or daughter is what we want, what we need. And it's not only what we want, what we need. We know, right, the reason why it's so good is because it never spoils or fades. When we look upon the face of Christ, it's something that will never fade, but only increase for an eternity. Eternal, ever-increasing joy is what the Christian has. Christ is mine and I am his. 
Why love vain words and seek after lies and have wine and grain but for a season? Why pursue things of this earth as a terminus, as an end? When I can have the king of kings as my own and be a citizen in his kingdom. This is what every struggling Christian on earth has. A deposit of joy down deep in our hearts that is not worth comparing to all the gold of Solomon. This is how struggling Christians can sleep at night. Take a look at verse 8 and we'll end there. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. How many of you have lied down but you've not slept? A lot of us, right? But the peace of the Christian is, as I heard one pastor says, circle that word and. We lie down, we both, or the word both. We lie and we sleep. Both. The Christian can both lie down and sleep. Why? Because the Lord, circle that word, alone makes us to dwell in safety. Any other trust in any other thing is below him. I alone trust you. And so I can lie down and sleep because I'm trusting him. Or as I, I pray to my boys many nights, Lord, may we sleep well tonight because we know that you are awake. Or as David would later write in Psalm 56, you have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. And God whose word I praise and the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? If God is for us, who can be against us? We put our trust in him. We lie down. We sleep. This is how the struggling Christian sleeps. We know we are safe because we are at peace with the Lord. They can kill us. We're still right with him and we go on into eternal joy. In Christ, he has set you, Christian, apart for himself. He sees you, he hears you, and so go to him in prayer. Strengthen from that time of prayer in your distress when you go to him, knowing you're heard, recounting your past grace. Then from that, go preach to your enemies. Call them to Jesus and away from the lies they've been believing. And then come back when they possibly... Uh, are antagonistic towards you. Come back and just ask God to show his face to you just for a minute and be reminded that there's more joy in your heart than the biggest of houses and the nicest of boats and the most of powers and thrones. There's more joy there than anything the world can give you. And you can lie down and you can sleep because Christ is interceding for you at the right hand of God. And one day you will be with him. And you'll be able to sleep now amidst your distress because you know that. What a joy. What hope we have in Christ. Sleep because God is at wake. And soon enough, we will no no longer have to ask him to lift his face upon us. Soon enough, we'll just be able to look at it face to face. And so until then, beloved, rest easy amidst your distress. Sleep. God has you. Rest in peace, knowing he's awake. Sleep well, Christian. Sleep well. Let's pray to him now.
Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have not gone to you in prayer as David has. Teach us amidst our distress to go to you remembering what you've done for us. Remembering that even now you hear us. Give us courage to preach the gospel to those that are opposing us. And may we go back home knowing that there's more joy in our hearts than there is in the grain and the wine of this world. May we know, God, may we know, may we trust, may we sleep well, knowing that you alone have made us to dwell in safety. And so, God, help us to get some good sleep tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.